So, what's wrong with the world? <laughs> that elicited a response, didn't it? It's a big question with a lot of possible answers. What's wrong with the world? It's those politicians. Those people in positions of power, they're what's wrong with the world. Or it's those corrupt companies and those corporations. They're what's wrong. If you're at home on one side of the political aisle, it might be everybody on the other side that's what's wrong with the world, and yet their fingers point back at you. For really righteous and religious folks, it's those without faith, and yet those without faith would say religion ruins everything. That question, what's wrong with the world, was posed over 100 years ago by the London Times newspaper, and they invited essay responses. The winning response came from a Catholic author by the name of G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? He wrote, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I love that response. I love that response because of its unwillingness to point fingers or to place blame on anyone else. I love its honesty and its authenticity to own the reality of brokenness in the world. G.K. Chesterton's self-awareness, his recognition of sin, is no longer in vogue in our world today, is it? Awareness of our sin used to be our shadow. Followers of Jesus hated sin, feared sin, fled from sin, grieved over sin. A man who envied his more successful sibling might question his presence at the Lord's table for communion. A woman who lost her temper might fear for her very salvation. But that's rarely the case anymore. In our wider culture, the mention of sin is often joined by a grin as if it's some sort of inside joke. Or it's used in descriptions of flavors of ice cream. Ooh, this new flavor is sinfully delicious. Now, when the actions of rich and famous and powerful people are revealed as deeply abusive, notice how they respond, because our wider culture no longer has that recognition of sin. And yet, by cutting off our awareness of sin, we lessen the recognition of what we've been saved from, and we miss the beauty of what we've been saved for. I think of G.K. Chesterton's response this morning as we continue our series, Summer in the Psalms. I think of that story because G.K. Chesterton's response is so similar to where David finds himself in Psalm 32. Hear God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose Sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, remember a few weeks ago, at the start of our series in Psalm 1, uh, we talked about the two Hebrew words for bless. There's barak, which we read hundreds and hundreds of times in the Hebrew scriptures, and asher, we only read 45 times. Now, Barak implies a special kind of favor. When God blesses his people, that's Barak. When when we bless God, that's Barak. When we bless each other, that's Barak. 
Hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the Hebrew scriptures we read that word barak for bless, but a share is only 45 times. And remember, we translate that happy or how happy. It implies that something has happened to bring about a change of state. And again, like Psalm 1, in Psalm 32, the New International Version translates a share as blessed, but a better translation is happy, or how happy. I love how the message puts it. Eugene Peterson writes, count yourself lucky. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slate is wiped clean. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you, and you're holding nothing back from him. How happy you must be. Why? Because something has happened. David continues, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. The the literal Hebrew reads, the summer parchedness. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice how David begins by declaring that God covers over his sin because he has uncovered it. God covers over the sin when we uncover our sin. It's like those earliest pages of the scriptures where Adam and Eve hide from God with mere fig leaves, but God, in his unending grace and mercy, covers Adam and Eve with loincloth. When David tried to hide his sin away, to handle his sin himself, It festered like an infected wound. But his openness and his honesty and his authenticity brings healing and wholeness. It's been said that the, the kiss of God's forgiveness removes the poison from the wound. And we know that this is how it works. In recent years, Psychologists and psychiatrists and even neurologists have clarified the profound impact of shame and guilt on our subconscious mind and how the path to healing and wholeness is vulnerability within the context of relationships. That is quite literally the only way we experience relief from the shame of our sin. Ask any psychologist you know. They will say that when someone comes in for treatment and they're dealing with immense sense of guilt and shame, the psychologist's primary mode of treatment will be what they call right brain to right brain connection. A repairing of relationship. The opportunity for vulnerability to be open and to be honest. You see, the wisdom of God's word was thousands of years ahead of its time. Now, Psalm 32 was written by David in a particular time and for a particular reason. It was authored. Do we have kids here? We don't have kids here, do we? Okay. It was authored after his lustful gaze of Bathsheba, followed by his abuse of power over her, then his attempt to cover it up by bringing her husband 
Uriah home from battle. And when Uriah didn't go in to say hello to his wife, David sent him back out to the front lines to die. And die he did. And then David, at long last, is called onto the carpet by the prophet Nathan. This is not exactly the story that we see on the flannel graph in Sunday school, is it? (laughs) This is intense stuff. And David tried covering it up and covering it up and covering it up. He'd kept silent, his bones wasting away, groaning all day long. And at long last, he repents of his actions. He changes his mind. He turns around. He confesses his sin. In the New Testament, the word for confess is homo logeo. Homo meaning same, logeo meaning word. To confess means to say the same word as God. To agree with God. Commentators disagree on how to classify Psalm 32. You know, commentators are always trying to say, well, what kind of psalm is this? Well, some say it's a penitential psalm with with David confessing. Others say, well, it's a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, and I'm convinced it's the latter. Remember, it starts with the word, how happy. David has already confessed when he sits down to pen Psalm 32. And we'd planned this sermon series out a long time ago, but but as the day came closer, that we knew that this would be the day when we would celebrate Dee's ministry among us, I paused early this week. And I thought, is this the right text to preach on this Sunday? (laughs) Maybe I should find something a little bit more uplifting, something a little bit lighter, something about singing and jumping three feet in the air while you conduct the choir. Right? I'm gonna, you know what, D, I'm gonna do it. I, I wasn't gonna do this, I'm gonna tell him. There's a little springboard back here. <laughs> we had it installed about 15 years ago. You come check it out later. It's kind of like a little trampoline. But the more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that this text that we'd planned without knowing what this day would be, the more I thought about it, the more I thought this text is actually a beautiful fit to celebrate Dee's ministry among us. Let me explain. See, Dee, you've not only taught us how to sing, but you've helped us learn what it means to worship. And to worship in response to what God has done. Amen. To what has happened through Jesus. Just like the song you and Anna gave us a few moments ago. You've not only led us in joy... At times, you've walked with us in in sorrow. You've not only shared your gifts with us on Sunday morning, you have shared your very life with us. You've shared openly and honestly and authentically about your life and even stories about your life before you came to know Jesus. And I'm going to confess your sins to everybody now. No, 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 no. You've shared about your life before you came to know Jesus, before you agreed with God, and how, and and tell me if this isn't true, how in doing so, you have been made really happy because of what has happened, because you've agreed with God about what God has done, and that's why you sing, and that's why you jump three feet in the air from the springboard back here. (laughs) See, David continues in Psalm 32, And David writes this psalm, but but notice how it echoes Dee's leadership among us. Hear these words. 
Imagine D leading us through Psalm 32. Imagine him instructing us with these words. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. For many enlightened 21st century Americans, the idea of sin seems silly and backwards and outdated. See, that's the problem with the world, that we're being made to feel guilty about ourselves. But for the ancient Hebrews, it was the exact opposite. Remember that God first revealed himself to this people in the ancient Near East amongst amongst other cultures with their various gods. It was assumed by the Sumerians and, and the Assyrians and the Babylonians that these gods were in charge of the created order. And so these gods somehow controlled the sun up there in the sky. And, and these gods somehow controlled the rains that fell to the ground. And so it was concluded well, we've got to keep the gods happy so they keep the sun shining and the rain falling and the plants growing for our sustenance. So this idea emerges thousands of years ago. Well, we must, we must need to keep the gods happy so they'll keep the sun shining and rain falling. And so they're constantly offering something to the gods. First fruit of the crops. The portion of an animal. There was a Canaanite deity named Molech who actually required child sacrifice. You see, trying to keep God happy is a vicious cycle. If the gods blessed you with a lot of sun and a lot of rain, well then you had to say thank you, right? By giving more. And yet, if they didn't give you enough sun or enough rain, well then you had to ask nicely by giving more. No matter what, there was this idea, we've got to somehow keep the gods on our side. And into this culture is the revelation of a different kind of God who prescribes different kind of things and that apparently cares not about his happiness, but ours. And there are prescriptions about how we are to rest assured that God is not angry, that we are in a right relationship with him. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, well done, gold star for you. But the book of Leviticus, if you've ever read it, you know, you did like a Bible through one year, and by early February, you're like, what is this? It seems backwards and outdated. All these prescribed rules and rituals for animal sacrifice, and yet for the ancient Hebrews, it was revolutionary. Let me tell you why. There are these very clear instructions to make right something that had been done wrong between us and between us and God. And Psalm 32 takes the line of reasoning even further when we confess our sin, when we merely agree with God, not only is God not angry, we are really happy. 
I grew up in a little town called Visalia, um, up in the Central Valley of California. On, on most Sundays after church, my parents and my older brother and I would pile into our white Oldsmobile, pick up a bucket of KFC, and drive into the foothills to an even smaller town called Three Rivers. It's just below the entrance to the Sequoia National Park. My grandparents had built a, a house there on the corner of a hill, and you had about a 270-degree view of the valley below. It was beautiful. It's quite a place for a couple of boys to explore. But at times, especially if we'd been there Sunday after Sunday, we would get a little tired of it. There was no TV, no video games. We would just sit around and talk. And we grew especially bored when my dad and my grandfather would be discussing business policies late into the afternoon for their various ventures, or discussing the tension in our homeland of Yugoslavia. We couldn't quite enter into that discussion. And so one Sunday, wanting to get home to my Nintendo, I must have been around 10 or 11, maybe my son Moses' age, I was alone, and I was standing at the top of this winding road um, practicing my pitching. Because you know I was supposed to be the starting pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. Did you know that? <laughs> this pastor thing is just a backup gig until I get drafted. <laughs> this might be my year. So I was taking rocks, and I was throwing them at the utility pole on the side of the hill. If I hit the pole, well, then that was a strike. And everything was going pretty well. I'd struck out a few Dodgers. It was great. <laughs> Again, not something happening this year, right? Um, until one pitch drifted up and out of the strike zone and hit what apparently they call a transformer. <laughs> Something my 10-year-old mind didn't know a lot about. And in my adult years, I came to know my grandfather as a kind and gentle <laughs> and generous man. But as a 10-year-old, I wasn't so sure. He was formed in a way by the old country. He was quiet. He didn't quite know how to interact with a little kid. But I knew what I had to do. And confessing to him was one of the most difficult things I had to do as a kid. Because my parents knew I did dumb stuff all the time. And I didn't have to confess to them because they'd catch me in it. And here I was thinking, that looked important and sounds like it might be a problem. And I'll never forget his response. Never forget his response. That week, I got a letter in the mail on his company's letterhead, probably transcribed on the typewriter by his secretary, but the words were all his. I'll never forget one of his statements in that letter, at the bottom of which he signed his name, good businessman. He said, it takes a true man to admit when he's broken something that belongs to others. I remember it so well because through the years, I have had a lot of practice echoing that confession on that Sunday afternoon. <laughs> and in a surprising way, our relationship grew closer as a result of that pitch that got away up and out of the strike zone. Philip Yancey, um, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, talks about how uh, when we sin, we cut the cord between us and God or, or us and someone else. And yet when we confess, when we own it, when we're open and honest and authentic about it, then 
that, that string, that cord gets tied, and as a result, it, you get a little bit closer. I've thrown a lot of pitches that have drifted up and out of the strike zone and struck a transformer in my life. I am a pro at missing the mark, and I've had a lot of opportunity to practice confession. But we know this. It's not just a true man who admits when he's broken something. It's the mark of a true Christian. It's the mark of someone who agrees with God. It's the mark of someone who echoes G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Well, (laughs) that was. But agreeing with God and echoing G.K. Chesterton is only the first half of the Christian life. The second half, the much better half, is knowing not only what we've been saved from, but what we are saved for. That kind of blessing that brings not only healing, not only wholeness, but happiness and joy. Dee, that's what you've led us in for 14 years. Not only what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. We're saved from by the same thing we're saved for, what the scriptures revealed thousands of years before science, before our psychologists, before our psychiatrists. The scriptures knew we are saved from and for by open and honest relationship. In this instance, relationship with our maker and creator through Jesus. We're saved from and saved for by a relationship with the living God who deeply desires not only our healing, not only our wholeness, but our happiness. And he's brought that about because of what has happened in Jesus that we celebrate in a few moments at this table. Before we do, I want to remind us of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. The author of Hebrews looks back on that sacrificial system that we see uncovered in Leviticus looks back on that season of unending sacrifices that would happen at the temple so that we could know that we were in a right relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews, in a rather inspired moment, says, those sacrifices were a reminder of your sin. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Day after day, every priest stands and performs their religious duties again and again, offering the same sacrifices, but they never took away sins. But this priest, this Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin and sat down at the right hand of God. For by this one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. See, that sacrificial system outlined in Leviticus and followed by God's people for centuries was a way of helping them understand what it means when we don't agree with God. What happens when we cut the cord. It it helped them understand when they looked at those sacrifices the impact of going our own way. But this Jesus, the great high priest, has come in the fullness of time to take away sins for all those who are being made perfect by his sacrifice. It's no mistake that our Jewish brothers and sisters will read from Psalm 32 on their day of atonement every year. 
It's no mistake that Psalm 32 is prescribed for followers of Jesus to read on Ash Wednesday every year because it reminds us not only of what we've been saved from, but what we are saved for. That as we confess those ways that we have cut that cord, it is tied and it is even closer than it was before. When we agree with God, we not only experience his healing, but the poison out of the wound. We not only experience his wholeness, David tells us we can experience his happiness, his joy. And so, Father, as we come to this table this morning, would you remind us of the good news of this Jesus? That we can live a life of openness and honesty and authenticity, not trying to cover over our sin and hide it away, but knowing that as we uncover it, you cover it by his blood. The blood of that one perfect sacrifice for us. So God, would we live lives that agree with you? That not only are saved from things, but for things, for that right, restored relationship that points toward the renewal of all things. Open our eyes and ears through your table this morning, God. That we might be really healed and whole and happy. It's in Jesus' name we pray.